It's not every day that I remember the first thought that I had when I woke up in the morning, but I remember the first thought I had when I woke up today. I, of course, thought, it's Sunday, and that means something to me uh, <laughs> each week. And then I thought, this is the first thing that came to my head. I thought, a whole bunch of us are going to get together to talk about and sing to a God we can't see. That's strange. <laughs> and it is a strange thing, isn't it? To our flesh and to the world. How weird. How peculiar is this? But do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas about that very thing? It's blessed. It's a blessed thing. Thomas believed because he could see and he could touch. But how much more blessed are we, though not seeing, not feeling, yet believe? Blessed. I just felt blessed when I sang that song. I hope you felt blessed. What a blessing. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we are in chapter 29, so toward the end of the book, the fifth book of your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 29. In the first sermon of this series, I mentioned that Deuteronomy is the Romans of the Old Testament, and we are just going to see more and more reason for that today. This Old Testament Romans brought before us this morning. And I shared with a couple of the guys this morning that out of all the sermons we've preached in Deuteronomy so far that I've particularly preached, we started in October, by the way, so we've preached a few here. Uh, this is probably in the top five or even the top three as far as longest time for preparing for me. There is so much I want to say today, and I want to say it correctly. By God's grace, I will. Bear with me if it's a bit longer. I hope you can hang in there. We've had Sunday school for the first time today in months, so your brain's already been exercised a little bit. So we're just going to give it an endurance test today. I'm so excited about what God has given us in these two chapters of the Bible, and I, I hope I can convey that appropriately. Let's pray together toward that end. Father, we are so grateful that you created us in your image and gave us the ability to communicate and to sing as you sing, we can sing. How marvelous a thought. We thank you for the encouragement to our souls that we receive from your word and from each other as your spirit works your word through each one of us. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. As we're getting close to the end of the book, you used your servant Moses to say so many important things. And I hope you'll use me today as your servant to convey what he said appropriately and rightly, that though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I would not be in the way of your word, but that your word would be so clear to your people that you would cause your word to have application in the hearts of your people who sit here today. Give us a real sweet time of fellowship as we study out these two chapters and cause us to be faithful men and women for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are landing the plane in Deuteronomy, and Moses is making his closing remarks 
to the children of Israel regarding the glorious and gracious law of God that law has given this chosen nation. He's making his final statements regarding the law or the Torah, as the Hebrew says. And this is the promised land generation, the generation that was born to that Exodus generation. This is the generation that will enter into that land, and there are very important things that he has to say to them. One thing I want to mention as we jump into the text today is you will see Moses speaking to Israel and using the pronoun you. This word that we use all the time, this word you, is used in an interesting way in that he will speak of past generations of Israel as you here today, and he will speak of future generations of Israel as you here today. And there's great purpose in that as we study Scripture and as the generations to follow would study Scripture, they were to take in this message as though it was spoken directly to them. But I just want you to see that, that and understand that as we go into the text, that when you see that word you, sometimes it means past, sometimes it means present, sometimes it means future. So let's look at this text today, Deuteronomy, not Romans, Old Testament Romans, Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2, Moses making his final appeals to this generation. It says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. We'll stop right there for the moment. They could see, but they couldn't see. He says to the Israelites, you've seen the wonderful works of God, but God hasn't given you eyes to see. What a statement that they had before them, all kinds of evidence of God's goodness, of who God is and who they were as fallen human beings, but they couldn't understand. God hadn't given them a heart to understand, it says. They could mentally understand how they were taken out of Egypt. They could mentally comprehend how God preserved them in the wilderness, but they could not to that day, it says, understand God's saving purposes in those actions. If you were to go back in a time machine and ask them, how did you get out of Egypt? They could explain, well, God parted the waters and we went through and here we are. But they could not understand the spiritual depths of that saving work of God because it says, verse 4 again, The Lord, Yahweh, has not given you a heart to know. Another point of evidence that this is the Romans of the Old Testament, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 5. Romans 11, verse 5 says, In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, and this is talking about a remnant of Israel. Paul is saying to this church in Rome, there is a remnant, a portion of Israel 
according to God's gracious choice, a remnant who has believed according to God's choice. And he says, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest, they were hardened. In verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Why do some Israelites believe in their Messiah and some don't? According to God's gracious choice, he gave some a heart to understand, eyes to see, and to others, the rest. It says, plain English, they were hardened. God gave them eyes to see not, and he sent a spirit of stupor. We see in these two texts that God is in total control of human hearts. In salvation. We're almost afraid to say amen to that, aren't we? God is in total control of human hearts in salvation. Israel's naturally idolatrous hearts left them without understanding. That's what we just read in Deuteronomy. They're naturally idolatrous hearts, these hearts that go after idols that don't run toward God but run away from God, even after God had done all the things, getting them out of Egypt and done all the things in the wilderness to help them survive, to give them manna, to give them water out of rocks. They ran to idols naturally, and they were left without understanding. They were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Their consciences were seared. And this isn't a matter of Could they even do it? It's a matter of would they do it? Because we we have to understand this in our passages today in Deuteronomy. It's not a matter of can, it's a matter of will. God created human beings to worship, to submit, to love, to praise, to bring glory to His name, to honor Him. And human beings can still do it. But in their natural state, human beings will not do it. When we got born again by God's grace, He didn't make a new you. You didn't need new eyes. You didn't need new ears. You didn't need a new mouth. But you were born again in here. Now your will has changed. You always could, but you wouldn't. And now you can, and you will, and you do. Vital to understand, just as with the fall, after Adam and Eve fell, they did not lose that image of God that allowed them to worship Him in spirit and in truth. They still had that image of God. And we see it, they were able to communicate. It's not like after the fall they were unable to communicate with one another, that all language fell off the map or something like that. Part of being in the image of God is being able to communicate. Have you ever thought about that? How we can explain really deep things of life. We're not just cavemen. Well, most of us aren't just cavemen. Pointing at things and grunting. But we can communicate and our souls can touch. Because we're humans made in the image of God. And Adam and Eve still had that. 
but their wills became enslaved. And so they could, but they would not. And all of us in our natural state can, but in our natural state won't. We need a new state. We need a new heart. And this is the difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. We're going to use these terms today, physical and spiritual Israel. Think of a circle. That circle on a pie chart represents all of national Israel. Everybody who is physically a Jew, that makes up 100% national Israel. But a smaller circle within that circle represents spiritual Israel, those who believe in the Lord by faith, those who have been saved by faith. That is spiritual Israel, those Israelites who have bowed the knee to God. So not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. And it's similar in the church. You take a a local church, say a church of a thousand people, there are lots of those out there. And who makes up that church? Well, it's a big circle. Who in there is really saved? Depending on the church, that may be a small circle within there. But we hope in churches like ours, by God's grace, it's close to 100%. Not all of physical Israel was spiritual Israel because God did not give all a heart to understand. Let me read to you a quote from G.K. Beale from his book, We Become What We Worship. This is an interesting book. I don't necessarily recommend it to everybody, but his whole premise is that you can see in the Old Testament that as people worshiped idols, they became like those idols. And he explains that in this quote. It says, at Mount Sinai, Israel is described mockingly as rebellious cattle because they were worshiping a calf and thus became like it. The point of the portrayal is that the first and later generations of Israelites were becoming as spiritually wayward, shameful, and profitless as the image of the rebelliousness, shamefulness, and worthlessness represented by the calf idols they revered. In addition, that God did not give the majority of Israelites in the wilderness a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear, that's a punishment upon the nation making them as spiritually dead as the idols they worshipped. You'll see in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, that they became like idols. Let me read to you Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 9, just verses 9 and 10. It says, by the way, you guys know about Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah's grand heavenly vision, he was there and he saw the angels saying, holy, 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 and the train of the Lord filled the temple. And God called out, who will go for us as a missionary? And what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. You're a Christian missionary. You've been given a great commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. That's our commission. Here's Isaiah's commission. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. Verse 10, for 10 acres of, I don't think this is Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. This isn't a joke. I really don't think it's Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Let's do it the old-fashioned way, and let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 6. Turn with me to the Isaiah 6. That lost the whole drama of the moment, didn't it? Isaiah 6. I don't know how that happened there, but Isaiah 6. 
starting in verse 9. This is Isaiah's great commission, okay? He said, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. That was Isaiah's great commission. Go and render their ears purposeless and their eyes purposeless that they couldn't hear and that they couldn't see. What a strange commission. And how was that even possible? Well, in their natural state, that's how they are. And as a prophet of God going out and explaining the excellencies of the God of the universe, what will be proven? That God is all-seeing, all-hearing, all-knowing, and that the people, the people are like grass. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't understand. They have become like those vain idols that they worship. The contrast presented in proclaiming God's message, that was Isaiah's commission. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel 12, 2. Let's see if that one's correct. Joseph, the program had a hiccup or something. Ezekiel 12, 2, the same type of commission given to Ezekiel. Hundreds of years later, son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Something that seems so basic to us, like understanding the gospel. If you're a Christian here today and you've proclaimed the gospel to somebody, you've explained the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody before, haven't you ever wondered, how do they not get it? It's so basic because something happened at the fall. Something happened. It's just a compounding effect as they worship vain idols that they can't see. They can't hear. They can't understand. That's what these words mean. They mean what they mean. Their will is entirely enslaved. And so Moses, back in Deuteronomy 29, preaching from that perspective, says this, starting in verse 5, showing them a glimpse of the past yet again. Deuteronomy 29, verse 5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, Sion the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. Verse 8, And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant. He takes their mind back to the past about how God not only brought them out of Egypt, but as they encountered new enemies along the way, God gave them victory in battle. Did the Israelites lack evidence of who God was? Did they lack any sort of reason to bow the knee to Yahweh. No. 
all the evidence, all the reason in the world. But again, Romans. What does Romans 1 say about what sinners do with evidence? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness and replace the truth with a lie. This is no clearer than in Israel's history. Truth, not only presented to them, they lived it. Moses is saying, hey, you remember how you had the same clothes and shoes on for the last 40 years? Isn't that something? Did that ever cross your mind like you didn't need new shoes? What great evidence. But they don't care. Naturally, naturally they suppress that truth. And look at the challenge to them for the present. Verse 9 again. So now, today, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Remember our three uh, Hebrew words we've been learning. Shema. Shema means to listen. Good. Shamar. Shamar means to? Yeah, to do or to keep. Very good. And the one we learned last week from Tyler, Zakar. Zakar. Some of you need to be called Zach because you might have a problem with this. Zakar means to? Remember, remember. So anybody that shows they have a bad memory, we'll just start calling you Zach. So your memory will be the same, but uh, you'll know one Hebrew word, okay? Zakar. So they were just told to Zakar, the past. Remember how God led you out of Egypt. Remember how God gave you victory in the land. And now they're told, Shamar, keep, do. Look again, verse 9. Keep the words of this covenant. Do the words of this covenant. And it's conditional, isn't it? Keep them so that, it says in verse 9, so that you may prosper. If you keep these words, you will prosper. And God brought them to this land for two reasons. Jump down to verse 12 with me. Verse 12, God brought them to this land that you, the Israelites, may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into this oath which the Lord your God is making with you today. They were brought to this point, they were brought to the land so that they would enter into this conditional covenant to keep the words of the commandment. And the second purpose is found in verse 13. They were brought to the land in order that God Himself may establish them as His people, and that they may worship Him as God just as He spoke to their fathers. God brought them to this land for the purpose of this covenant and to make them His people. And the covenant was extended beyond that generation. Look at verse 14. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant, it says. But who's He making the covenant with? It's the subsequent generations, the children of children of children that were coming after. It wasn't just that one group of people. But their children were to enter into this covenant also. And by doing so, by keeping the covenant, by practicing that word shamar, keeping commandments, by doing that, their children would be kept from idolatry. Look what it says about idolatry in verse 18. Why are they to keep the commandments? So that there will not be among you a man or a woman, a family or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Idolatry, which comes from a fallen heart here, is compared to a poisonous tree. 
And what does a poisonous tree produce? Poisonous fruit. A poisonous plant produces poisonous fruit. You know that. There are some berries you can eat and some you can't eat. It's because the plant is poisonous. Jesus taught every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. Idolatry is a bad tree. And the fruit of that generation's idolatry would be their children. If that generation did not keep the commandment, then their children would be the fruit of that bad decision to go after other gods. And look at this person that's presented in verse 19. It says, It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, speaking of a hypothetical sinner. Listen to this boast. I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. That's the only quote that's there. This hypothetical sinner boasting in his sin. You've promised curses for sin, but I have peace. I'm going into this land that's righteous, but I'm going to bring my stubborn heart, my unrighteousness into this land and make it desolate, and I have peace about it. How many people do you know who have that idolatry bound up in their heart? They are one of those bad trees that Jesus talked about that have this type of outlook on life. Well, I have peace. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to hear the Word of God. Well, what does God say to that? Verse 20. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. Israel was given this promise to those who wanted to talk back to God and to puff up their chest and to walk, strut like a peacock through Israel with their sinful heart. That's the promise, that God would deal with them directly. You think God takes pride seriously? He certainly does. And then we get a picture of the future. Moses took them to the past. He gave them a command for the present and now their tragic future. We're going to read this as a whole, 22 to 28. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and in His wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, because... They forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. 
And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. The same promise that was given to that haughty sinner strutting through Israel with his prideful heart, that same promise is given to Israel as a whole, as a glimpse of their future. There is coming a day when this land, this beautiful land, you got to imagine they're right there. They're on the plains of Moab. They know about the land. They've seen the land. How beautiful it was, how rich it was in soil, how perfect that land is that people still want, by the way. They saw it, and they're given this promise. It's going to be unproductive. It's going to be laid to waste. And think of how heavy this comparison is. It'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. For an Israelite, how heavy is that comparison? And you might not recognize the other two cities on there, Adma and Zeboim. Those two cities, they made a pact with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were partners with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God destroyed them too. So any Christian that thinks about putting a rainbow sticker on their car might want to think twice. Just a thought. It's likely that in verses 22 to 28, when he's talking about the certain destruction of the land, that the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions are in mind. Just a few hundred years later, Assyria would come and take the northern kingdom. And after that, Babylon would come and take the southern kingdom. And that land truly was laid desolate. In fact, if you were to read, you can write this down, Judges 17 and 18, about this guy named Micah who took in a priest, Judges 17 and 18. This priest who led the Danites into idolatry and who contributed to the destruction of his own country, Moses' own grandson, Jonathan. Isn't that something? Here's Moses giving this sermon, warning about idolatry and giving a prophecy about the destruction of the land and his own grandson, a wicked priest. An amazing thought. And now the last verse of this chapter, 29-29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. It's a really important verse. You can imagine how after hearing these things come out of Moses' mouth, the children of Israel could get together and ponder. They could ponder for quite some time about how this was all going to play out, and they could focus on speculations. They could focus on how God was going to do these things that were promised to them. Moses says, the secret things belong to God. What were they supposed to focus on? Look what it says. The things revealed belong to us. That's why God revealed it. God knows all things, and He's only revealed a very small portion of what He knows. You ever thought about that? He's only revealed a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what He knows. That's for us. And all those things unknown, that 99 point whatever percent, all of that unknown, that belongs to the Lord. There are lots of Christians today who like to spend their time talking about angels. There hasn't been a lot revealed about angels. I believe in angels. 
I believe the Bible talks about angels. I believe we can define angels and talk about the ministry of angels. But should we make a TV show out of it (laughs) and go on and on and on? Should we write books about it? Should we get into all the the intricacies and figure out how many of them can dance on the head of a pin? (laughs) That all belongs to God. The things revealed belong to us. People always want to know and talk about, it seems like, those things that God hasn't revealed. That's not our call. Our call is to focus on what has been revealed. And for Israel, it meant focusing on God's redemptive work in the past and to focus on the task of the present and to keep in mind the coming failure of a nation. But now in chapter 30... We get a lot of good news. Israel gets a lot of good news. We find out about some end times blessings for Israel, some eschatological blessings. And chapter 30 answers the question, what's the relationship between Israel's return to Yahweh and Yahweh's return to Israel? How do those two things work? If we believe Israel is going to be restored and they're going to have a a new heart to believe, how does that all work? Well, let's read another chunk of Scripture, verses 1 through 10 of Deuteronomy 30, to see this all in one shot. Look at this sweet promise to this chosen nation. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and all your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. Verse 8, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. I want to give you two basic observations from that passage. The first one doesn't need much explanation, but the second one does. What we just read in that passage is that Israel will be gathered back into the land God gave them by His power and by His timing. Israel will be gathered into the land that God gave them according to His power and His timing. That's a pretty simple one. It just, it says it. 
So <laughs> there it is. The second one is this. Israel will be given a spiritual ability it previously did not possess. Israel will be given nationally, this is the whole nation, a spiritual ability that it previously did not possess. I want you to look at verse 6 again with me and think of God as a heart surgeon. God the heart surgeon coming in in verse 6. It says, as a promise to national Israel, to all of Israel, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Deuteronomy 6, the great commandment. Jesus said the great commandment to love him with all your heart and with all your soul. But they had a heart problem. You can't love God with all your heart if your heart's bad. And they were idolatrous people. Their hearts, their wills were enslaved to sin. They were a bad tree that could only bring about bad fruit. They had to be made a good tree. And that problem was recognized in this very book. Let me read to you. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. This commandment was given to Israel. Circumcise your hearts and stiffen your neck no longer. That commandment was given to them because that was the problem, was their heart. They needed a heart change. And they were commanded, change your own heart. Didn't work. Didn't work. They couldn't do it. And so what do we see in verse 6 of chapter 30 as the promise of God? The Lord will circumcise your heart. They couldn't fix their own hearts, but God will come in and God will fix their hearts. That is the promise of this great and glorious new covenant. Let me give you some more texts in the Old Testament because this is an Old Testament theme from the prophets that they needed a new heart. And we'll just focus on Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, verses 3 through 6. Ezekiel chapter 14, starting in verse 3. It says, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Verse 4, Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols, where? In his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his own iniquity or sin. And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. Verse 5. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. The problem in Israel during Ezekiel's day was that they all had these false gods in their hearts, just like people today. And then they would want to run to Ezekiel with all these false gods in their hearts and say, tell us what God says, thinking he's just another God. He's just another idol. 
And God says, I will come and deal with that man. Don't come to my prophet if you have these idols bound up in your heart. Or if you want to come to my man, the prophet, God says, repent, circumcise your heart, turn away, do away with that that sin bondage, and then I'll hear you. But they can't. They can't do it. Again, from Ezekiel 18, 31, Ezekiel 18, verse 31, God says, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, Israel? Make yourselves a new heart. Cause yourself to be born again. Be born again. It's that easy, right? They can't do it. Look at these verses in Ezekiel. Chapter 11, verse 19. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. God says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. They couldn't do it. God has to do it. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh. This is the new covenant that God enters into human hearts and performs a surgery, a spiritual surgery. The things that they couldn't do, repenting, God grants. Repentance is a command of the gospel. That's man's response. But you know what? You can't do it. God teaches in the New Testament multiple times that he has to grant it. Pray for all men that God might grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. You see the order, how that works? Paul's letter to Timothy, God grants them repentance. Then they repent, and that leads to a knowledge of the truth. It has to be in that order. It can't be the other order. God is the one who enables in salvation. And remarkably, God has started with the Gentiles in the new covenant This promise for Israel is still valid. When it says you up there, that's not me and you. That's national Israel. That's who that promise was made to. But here we are as a wild tree, the branch getting grafted in. And we're enjoying these new covenant blessings as Gentiles. Isn't that remarkable? Let's look at Colossians 2 together. Turn with me to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 14, and I want you to see this new covenant language, the covenant that was made with Israel that we get to enjoy because Jesus came for the nations. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. See to it, it says. It's always important to pay attention to what comes after that. See to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, for in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How do you like that verse? (laughs) It's a good one. Memorize it. Get it tattooed on your forehead or something. Verse 10, (laughs) Colossians 2.10. And in Him, Jesus, you have been made complete 
and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, look at this, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way. What did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. Jesus comes, inaugurates a new covenant, and he came to his own. His own did not receive him. The apostles shook the dust off their feet. We read about this on Wednesday night. And off to the Gentiles they go. And here we are. We were dead. It's a really fancy Greek word. It means necros. It means dead. We were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh, our hearts. All those idols bound up in our hearts. And then God made us alive together with Jesus. How did we have our first spiritual finger move in this world? Because God resurrected us first. God entered our hearts first. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is First Peter. Caused us to be born. What did you have to do with your birth? Not a thing. Mommy and daddy caused you to be born. It just happened to you. God causes us to be born again to a living hope and to have life. And one day, the promise of Deuteronomy 30, one day national Israel will turn to Jesus and enjoy all the blessings in Jesus in their own land. Isn't that an amazing thought, how faithful God is? How patient God is? It's the only way they could ever get back to their land and ever bow the knee to Jesus as if God did it. Think of how complicated this world is. Where is Israel? Find all the, all the ethnic Israelites for me. Could you do it? Not a chance. The Human Genome Project won't solve that puzzle. How's it going to happen? By the working of God. It says, even if you're scattered to the end of the earth, I'm going to find you. And where are they going to be brought to? The land. Because God is faithful to His covenants. And he will do it. One day they will all turn to King Jesus, their Messiah. And back in Deuteronomy 30, notice how their obedience is still central. Look at verse 6 again with me. God will circumcise their hearts to what end? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Look at verse 10 again with me. What are they going to be doing with these new hearts? Well, as they obey God, which they are now enabled to do with this new spiritual ability in the future, God's, God's going to cause them to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in the Torah. As they turn to God with all their heart and with all their soul. So obedience is not cast away in the new covenant. We don't take obedience to God's commands and say, well, that's done. 
Once you're born again, once God gives you a new heart, then you don't have to obey anymore. You're just blessed. Hashtag blessed, right? I'll just do whatever I want and throw it up on whatever social media I use and call it blessed. Obedience is still central in the new covenant, isn't it? Hearing the word of God, studying the word of God, obeying the word of God, teaching the word of God. It's all central to new covenant living. And it's the means of God's blessing this people. Look at verse 11, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. The law was the means of God's blessing that nation if they would just obey. The law was very near to them. It's not like God gave Moses the the law and then it was kept up on a mountain that someone couldn't get to. It was given to them directly. It wasn't far off. It was right there. God's means of blessing was right there. I listened to a song this morning. It was a secular song, not a Christian song, but it talked about Moses. It was weird. It said, uh, God gave Moses a bunch of commands, told him to pass them around. (laughs) Not exactly how it worked, but kind of how it worked. They had the command. It wasn't far away from them. It was near to them. The revealed law was accessible. Remember the last verse of chapter 29? The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. The Torah was revealed. The Torah belonged to them. They were to take hold of the Torah. And every law could be done, but it would not be done. Because that near law, that ever-present law that was with them, constantly condemned them as it was shown that they could not do it. It's not far away. It's right here. Just do it. Remember God's question in Ezekiel? Why Why do you die, Israel? Why? The blessing's right here. Take hold of it. Do it. They can't because they won't. They are in bondage. They are enslaved. And this should teach us as we observe the law that legislation does not beget love, does it? Giving out a law doesn't cause someone to have a heart to love. Only love can beget love. And who is the one who causes us to love? The capital L, love of the universe, God himself. He's the one who enters into human hearts and begets love. Give them a law and say, love God. Here's the law. The law can't do it. They can't love God by just choosing on their own, to follow a bunch of rules. But if God enters their hearts and stirs up a love for Him, and out of that love for Him, they're then enabled to obey. They're then enabled to walk in the law and to see the beauty and the grace and the mercy of the Torah. And then the choice, it's summed up in verses 15 through 20. See... I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity 
and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. It's that easy. Just keep it all and it's done. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Life and death. Keep thinking about those verses in Ezekiel. Why do you die, Israel? Why not choose life, Israel? Because to choose life, they would have to be be able to perform their own heart surgery. And you can't do it. They couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. He presents the opportunity for blessing to them, but they won't acquire it because they will not acquire it. Their heart is enslaved to a will, and they're in bondage. And if their wills were free to choose life, on their own, without the intervening grace of God, there never would have been a new covenant. The old covenant would have been good enough. Just do it. Just choose life. That's it. But a new covenant comes along because the old covenant couldn't do what the new one does. Enters in and offers life eternal and forgiveness of sins. So I want us to think of these things. Can you give me six and a half minutes? That sounded like a majority. All right. For, for the Christian, two things that I want you to hear today and to, to soak in from today's message. Two things. The first one is to understand the state of Israel. They're the only nation God has ever chosen. Sorry, you red, white, and blue bleeding Americans. Israel is the only nation God has ever chosen. And they're calling... As his nation, according to the book of Romans again, their calling is irrevocable. God's choice of them can't be reversed. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I want you to understand again the difference between physical and spiritual Israel. Not all Israel, just because they're this chosen nation, that doesn't mean they all know God. In fact, the great majority of them do not know God. Yet there is a remnant as we read in Romans way back at the beginning of the message, there's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And it's seen both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God's choice of certain Israelites. In the Old Testament, if they had faith and they had a disposition toward the Torah that was one of, I need your law, I want to obey your law, that's great evidence of God's gracious choice of them, isn't it? And what is it in the new covenant? What do we look for to see evidence of God's gracious choice of new covenant members, Israelites or otherwise, bowing the knee to King Jesus, submitting to the Messiah, loving Jesus because of what he did for us in salvation. Interestingly, 
Though Israelites were called to faith, we didn't see that word faith today in these two chapters that we read, did we? Didn't see the word faith. There's a Hebrew word for faith that's not in there. But I want to show you again verse 20, the very last verse we looked at. Tell me that this isn't faith. Loving God. Hearing His voice. This is Shema. Listening in such a way that you're changed to obey. And holding fast to Yahweh. Isn't that faith? That's a call to faith. Where this has to start, our relationship with God has to start from a posture of faith, not of works. And in the future, as we wrap up this first point of understanding the state of Israel, in the future, the Israelites will believe because of new hearts that God gives. It will create a willing obedience in them. God will grant them new hearts. He will put a new spirit in them. He will take out the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh that they will believe. Jeremiah 31, I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Those pronouns in there, as a reminder, that's not us. That's national Israel. But are you enjoying those blessings because the new covenant has been offered to you? The church, yes, you are. Yes, you are. We have been grafted in. It's an amazing thing. What God has done in our lives, He's going to do in the lives of His elect nation in their land. An amazing thought. All right, second thing. I got, what, three and a half minutes left? Zero minutes left? Okay, the second thing. The substance of genuine faith is Jesus. The substance of genuine faith is is Jesus. In Deuteronomy 30, again, uh, verses 11 through 14, Moses said, I'm giving you this commandment today. I command you a commandment today. And then in verse 14, he doesn't use the word commandment. Look at the word he uses in verse 14. He doesn't say the commandment is very near you. He says the word is very near you. It's a different word. It's the word that's used in Hebrew is different between commandment and word. That's an interesting thing to note because the Word is still near today, isn't it? Just as the Word was near to them, the Word is near today. But the Word is near today to human beings in a different way than it was to them, the Jewish people at that time. Because now the Word has flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a delightful thought. That the Word is near us, not because it's a written code that was handed down from generation to generation, but because the ultimate fulfillment of the Torah, of Torah righteousness, of the law. Jesus himself, the lawgiver, came here and presented himself as the word of God to us. 
An amazing thought. Jesus is the fullness of righteousness. Last passage I'm going to read to you, Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Okay, get your mind tuned in here. The righteousness that is based on faith, not based on works, but based on faith, that righteousness speaks this way. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Who's going to say that? What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What word? Jesus. The word become flesh. The word of faith, which we are preaching. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is using that same text we looked at. Don't say about the law, the Torah. Who's going to go get it? Who's going to cross the sea? Who's going to go up to heaven and get it? Paul's using that same text in reference to Christ. Just as the law, the Torah, was a means of blessing in the first covenant as the word of God, in the new covenant, the means of blessing is Jesus, the word of God. He's a mediator of a new covenant. He is the means by which the whole world receives blessing. He is the Word. And you don't have to go to heaven to bring Him back down. You don't need to go into the grave and bring Him up. Jesus is here with us. Don't you remember that promise going back to the Great Commission again? I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. The very near Word of God, the means of blessing from God is Jesus Himself. This is all about faith in the Lord, the Lord who came in flesh to give us righteousness in exchange for our sin because of what He accomplished on our behalf. Father, thank You again for this wonderful day, Your wonderful mercies in Jesus. Thank You for salvation and for Your kindness and patience toward us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.